0: The year is 1987, and American TV networks launch a number of short lived shows such as Starman, The Popcorn Kid, and Probe. In a fit of midlife nostalgia and an effort to remind the world of shows they have forgotten, lone podcast pilot Chris Cooling steps into the Forgotten TV studio 30 years later. To obscure TV memories of the 70s and 80s, including short-lived TV shows and made-for-TV movies, this is Forgotten TV. Welcome to Forgotten TV. I am your host, Chris Cooling. Forgotten TV is an independent, listener-supported podcast with no advertising. You can support Forgotten TV through Patreon or PayPal and become a producer of the show. This episode of Forgotten TV was executive produced by Will Welton, Doc Pinko, and Robert. The DVD used was provided by listener Kenneth Taylor. Thanks to all for your support of Forgotten TV. The year was 1980. Gary Larson introduces America to the far side in newspapers nationwide. The mysterious Georgia Guidestones are erected in Elbert County, Georgia which would become fodder for decades of conspiracy theories. And Mount St. Helens erupts in Washington state, causing the largest landslide ever recorded, moving at an incredible 130 miles per hour. Hot ash was blasted 80,000 feet into the atmosphere, and nearby rivers were turned into walls of hot mud, destroying some 200 homes, 47 bridges, and 230 square miles of forest. 57 people were killed, and some $3 billion in damage to the area was caused. Films in wide release early in the year included the long-awaited Star Trek The Motion Picture, Disney took us to The Black Hole, Bob Fosse gave us all that jazz, and John Ritter was the hero at large. In the world of TV, networks were still reeling from the industry shakeup when programming executive Fred Silverman jumped ship from ABC to NBC in 1978, resulting in a primetime battlefield littered with the remains of an unprecedented number of failed series. When mid-season came around at the dawn of 1979, 36 new series were debuted across the three networks. Among these were spin offs Hello Larry and The Ropers. Networks were swimming in the wake of Animal House with Delta House, Brothers and Sisters, and Co-Ed Fever. And this was the season for short-lived flops that were on briefly but quickly fizzled out, such as Time Express, Cliffhangers, and Super Train, all considered on other episodes of Forgotten TV only a very few stuck around for any length of time. The only examples I found were The Dukes of Hazzard for CBS and BJ and the Bear and Real People at NBC. By the time of the 1979 fall season, things were not settling down much with the networks introducing a total of 56 new shows, down only three from the previous TV season. While ABC was still the one, and NBC was proud as a peacock, things were looking good for CBS. The Tiffany Network would hold eight of the top ten shows for that season, thanks in part to their new blockbuster Sunday night programming block, starting off with 60 Minutes, followed by Archie Bunker's Place, One Day at a Time, Alice, The Jeffersons, and Trapper John, M.D. CBS would dominate Sunday night with variations on this lineup for several years until the mid-80s. Their Friday night program block was also strong with the Incredible Hulk, The Dukes of Hazard, and Ratings Powerhouse, Dallas capping off the prime time evening. Other nights were a little more problematic, programming around movies on Tuesday and Wednesday nights, and aging but successful hits mash Hawaii Five o and The Waltons at midseason. The network introduced a dozen new shows to replace seven of their fall failures. Several of these series had very short five to six episode test runs with the show given the boot, if not an immediate success. These included The Contender with Mark Singer in his first leading role, Hagen, a legal drama with Chad Everett in the title role, Phil and Mickey, a Cold War sitcom, Flo with Polly Holiday, which was renewed for a second season and the show that was the briefest flash in the pan on the CBS midseason schedule, Beyond Westworld.
1: Premiering Wednesday, Beyond Westworld. The question, how do you kill a man who may be a machine? A scientific genius has built human-like robots programmed to endanger the world. He's planted a robot on a nuclear sub. The mission, locate and destroy it. Watch Beyond Westworld, premiering Wednesday at 8, 7 Central.
0: This was not a TV series concept pulled out of thin air, nor was it an original idea from the mind of series developer Lou Shaw. Westworld had been a successful movie franchise with two installments. The initial 1973 film grossed $16.5 million, against its estimated $1.3 million budget. Written and directed by Michael Crichton, this was his first outing as a film director, and Crichton's story was an original concept, conceived specifically for the film. His 1969 novel, The Andromeda Strain, had been adapted into a successful 1971 film for Universal. Crichton shopped his Westworld script to all major film studios, with only MGM willing to take a chance on the new director, provided he could shoot the film in 30 days for the aforementioned budget.
1: Uh, vodka martini on the rocks with a twist of lemon. Very dry, please. Just give him whiskey. He's new in town. (coughs) What you're seeing isn't really happening. Richard Benjamin and James Brolin are cowboys. They're vacationers in a fantastic resort called Westworld. And Yule Brenner isn't a gunslinger. He's a robot. In fact, all of Westworld is peopled by robots. Kill him. Your move. Westworld, the ultimate resort, where for $1,000 a day, you can live out every fantasy you ever had. Uh, not now. Let me do it this time. And nothing can possibly go wrong. I'm shot. Go wrong. Draw. Go wrong. Oh my God. Go wrong. Shut down. Shut down immediately. Westworld, a fantastic new movie by Michael Crichton, starring Yul Brenner, Richard Benjamin, and James Brolin.
0: Westworld, you've never seen anything like it. Rated PG. Westworld took place in the near future of 1983 when a corporation named Delos opened a high-tech adult amusement park populated with lifelike androids, mostly indistinguishable from humans. For $1,000 a day, guests could visit any of three themed worlds, Western World featuring a romanticized, largely mythologized, stereotypical American Old West. Medieval world, a presentation of Middle Ages Europe. And Roman world, where visitors could be immersed in the ancient Roman city of Pompeii. Pre-volcanic destruction, of course. Due to the high degree of realism of the androids, simply called robots in the film, guests could engage in sexual encounters jousting, sword fights, and gunfights with them, with the battles ending in the death of the robot antagonists, while safety protocols were designed to prevent the human guests from coming to harm. When the robots begin experiencing breakdowns and system failures that spread across Delos from one world to the next like an infection, human guests everywhere must fend for themselves against murderous robots and the two leads, played by James Brolin and the mustachioed Richard Benjamin, must face off against Yul Brynner's gunslinger robot for real. A duel which one of them will not survive. The concept of human-appearing robots, or androids, was not something totally new in 1973. In Forgotten TV episode 31, I considered the history of robots in speculative fiction, the first science fiction television program ever broadcast was R.U.R., or Rossum's Universal Robots, in 1938, an adaptation of the 1921 play by Carol Capek. The Image of Maria from the 1927 German Fritz Lang film Metropolis remains in our collective consciousness, as her design was an obvious influence on later robotic characters. The Twilight Zone had multiple appearances of human-looking androids, starting in 1959, and in 1964, so were both Robert Culp and Julie Newmar on The Outer Limits and My Living Doll, respectively. Although the Westworld film falls into the category of speculative or science fiction, Crichton didn't care for the film to be pigeonholed as such. I hate science fiction. I never wanted to be called a science fiction writer. Westworld is really about fantasies. Most of our fantasies are movie-generated. When I was growing up, I didn't want to be a character out of Hemingway. I wanted to be Cary Grant. Westworld is about people living out their fantasies generated by seeing Western movies. Appropriately, in Westworld, the appearance of the gunslinger was based on Yul Brynner's character from 1960's The Magnificent Seven, as the costumes were nearly identical, with the exception of the $2,000 contact lenses, which gave his eyes an inhuman, silvery appearance. Brenner's depiction of the gunslinger influenced legendary characters in later films. In the DVD commentary for 1978's Halloween, director John Carpenter took the concept of a relentless, indestructible killer, including Gunslinger's distinctive walk, and applied it to Michael Myers. And Arnold Schwarzenegger has reportedly cited Yul Brenner's performance as his influence for his characterization of the terminator. On the technical side, Westworld was the first film to use digital image processing, where film footage was pixelated with raster graphics to depict the point of view of the gunslinger robot. The concept of using this primitive form of CGI originated with Michael Crichton, who couldn't find a special effects house to even understand the effect he was looking for. I wanted to film the scenes and then manipulate the film with a computer. Such a process had never been used for motion picture films before, and none of the special effects houses even knew what we were talking about. None of the special effects houses had computers or were even thinking about them. All they could do were variations on photographic techniques. We went to the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena. At least they knew what we were talking about. They could do it. They could process two minutes of movie film. It would take nine months and cost $200,000. Since the entire film had to be finished and released in six months, at a total cost of a million dollars, we had to look elsewhere. Eventually, John Whitney Jr. agreed to undertake the job in four months for $20,000. Working long hours and nights with giant mainframes, John was able to process only a few seconds of film a week. Interestingly, some 40 years later, Whitney admitted he wasn't even sure exactly how he would accomplish the effect. I was playing a confidence game. We went through screening after screening for the people at Metro with scene-missing cards. We came within two weeks of having to cancel the release date. But the film indeed was released Wednesday, August 15th in five upper Midwest states, Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, and Ohio. The film then went into wide release November 21st, which is why you'll find two release dates for it online. The practical effects of Westworld were also outstanding, especially given the film's budget. In particular, the face-removal scenes, which were light-years ahead of what people had seen on The Six Million Dollar Man. American Cinematographer magazine even did an entire issue on Westworld in November 1973, and Westworld was MGM's top-grossing movie of that year. Westworld was also the first film to depict the concept of a computer virus although this was not specifically referred to as such. Although predicted as early as 1949, the first generally accepted computer virus had only been written just two years earlier in 1971, called the Creeper, which moved across mainframes over the ARPANET. Like most early computer viruses, it was not malicious, simply displaying the message, I'm the Creeper. Catch me if you can. In response, the first antivirus program called Reaper was written the following year to delete Creeper from infected machines. The 1970 science fiction novel, The Scarred Man, was likely the first representation of a computer virus, as well as antivirus software, in fiction. Westworld's depiction of a computer virus, presented to audiences a decade before home computers even started to become common, and before microcomputers were even introduced to the average office, must have seemed like pure science fiction. Therefore, the concept was shown as something new and theoretical to the Delos scientists, which is understandable as computer viruses did not become commonly mentioned in the mainstream media for another 15 years, when in 1988, several viruses made national news. That summer, the cyber-AIDS virus spread out from local BBSs, infecting Apple machines on mainstream networks. In November, grad student Robert Morris Jr.'s Morris Worm took advantage of buffer overruns and infected some 6,000 university and military computers. Morris then became the first to receive a felony conviction in the U.S. under the 1986 Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. And in December, the DOS-62 virus hit 80 Soviet computers at the USSR Academy of Sciences. Westworld aired on NBC in February 1976, using a slightly longer version featuring extended and deleted scenes. This is notable because this is the first example I find of a longer version of a film airing on TV using extended and deleted footage. This was again done later that same year for 1974's Earthquake. This airing was fortuitous, as a sequel to Westworld was being prepared by another studio. Future World would release to theaters late that July. Westworld was re-released to theaters that summer, where it ran as a double feature with Future World at various drive-ins across the country.
1: Where Westworld stops, Future World begins future world offering fantasy sensuality and adventure complete satisfaction guaranteed entrance fee $1,200 a day exit fee your life Peter Fonda Blythe Danner Arthur Hill and Yul Brynner as the gunslinger in future world rated PG parental guidance suggested in that
0: 1976 sequel starring Peter Fonda Blythe Danner, and with Yul Brynner returning as the Gunslinger, a pair of reporters are invited to examine and review the reopening Dallas theme park, two years after the tragic events of the first film. Dallas now offered four themed worlds, adding Spa World and Future World to its lineup. The reporters are given a tour and assured all the old problems resulting in the death of 50 guests and 95 staff have been resolved. You see, the control center is now staffed by robots instead of humans. Nothing can go wrong. However, the reporters stumble upon a scheme to replace world leaders and prominent citizens with robot duplicates that are instructed to destroy their human originals and work for the continued good of the Delos Corporation. With the help of a friendly technician, they are able to temporarily escape, but discover to their horror their own robotic duplicates that intend to replace them, which leads to fights between two on-screen Peter Fondas and Blythe Danners. At the conclusion, the real reporters trick an official into thinking they are the duplicates and leave Dallas intent on exposing the plot to the world. This sequel film was produced by American International Pictures, not MGM, as part of a turnaround deal when MGM chose not to produce an additional science fiction film that year, focusing instead on Logan's run. With Michael Crichton not interested, Westworld producer Paul Lazarus III developed the story, with writers Mayo Simon and George Schneck, and sought financing from AIP. Facing a more competitive summer than the first film did three years earlier, with films such as The Omen, The Outlaw Josie Wales, and even Logan's Run in theaters, the film only did $4.2 million, against its $2.5 million budget. The depiction of the heroes of the film being reporters that expose the truth, as well as the film's conspiratorial tone, definitely dates it to the post-Watergate 1970s. Future World was not nearly as groundbreaking as the first film, and was largely a retread of ideas by 1976. After all, ten years earlier, Kirk had experienced a robotic duplicate being made of him in the Star Trek episode, What Are Little Girls Made Of? 1972 had already given us the Stepford Wives, perfect-looking, obedient robotic replicas dedicated to domestic servitude. And the $6 million man had depicted robotic replacements for Oscar Goldman and an Army major, not to mention the Fembots that would come along that fall on the Bionic Woman shortly after Future World's release. Something that would be referenced in pop culture decades later. Bring in the Still, just as Westworld broke ground by showing 2D computer imagery, Future World was the first film to show 3D computer-generated imagery seen on a computer monitor in the form of a hand and face. However, these clips were not specifically animated for the film, but for short subjects already produced for the 1972 short A Computer Animated Hand by Ed Catmull and the 1974 DARPA finance thesis film Faces by Fred Park. Catmull went on to be the co-founder of Pixar, and Park became a computer science academic and currently teaches at Texas A&M. A final bit of trivia regarding Future World. The rights to the film are now ironically owned by MGM, the same studio that chose not to produce the film. American International Pictures was sold to Filmways, which was later bought by Orion Pictures, which was acquired by MGM in 1997. However, the original Westworld film is now distributed by Warner Brothers. Now let's return to the world of TV in 1979. TV writer Lou Shaw had started in the medium in the late 1950s, writing such TV westerns as The Rebel, Wagon Train, and Have Gone Will Travel. He became a producer on McLeod in 1975 and had been the creator of NBC's popular Quincy M.E., successfully enlisting super-producer Glenn Larson to sell that series concept to Universal in 1976. This time, he pitched the Beyond Westworld series directly to MGM, who then took it to CBS, who greenlit a pilot which CBS president William Paley reportedly loved. Shaw was then given a very short time to get series production underway. There is a lot more to the story than that, but let's save it for behind the scenes, and take a look at the episodes of Beyond Westworld. Episode 1, Westworld Destroyed.
1: As soon as the sub gets back to port and is fully armed with the nuclear missiles, I'll be ready to take my place among the great powers on Earth. He's gotta be transmitting to a robot aboard that sub. The robot is absolutely perfect, undetectable. I think he's a robot.
2: You do.
1: I also think every man on this sub is. You are, and I'm not so sure about myself. Load the missile tube now. Destroy Delos.
2: Oh, my God.
1: A robot? Are you trying to tell me we wouldn't be able to know if a man were real or not?
2: Let's face it, John. When push comes to shove, it's your wits against Quade's machines.
0: The pilot begins with the announcement that Westworld has been destroyed as Delos Security Chief John Moore arrives by helicopter. Chief Technician Laura Garvey briefs Moore on the events of the robotic and technical malfunctions Delos experienced at the Westworld attraction.
2: Westworld shut down each night at 2 a.m. The robots were left where they were deactivated. At dawn, the computer room went back into operation.
1: Westworld will activate in 30 seconds.
2: That day started like any other, with all the usual procedures. 20 seconds. Those were some of the most highly trained experts in the world. What do you mean, were? The computer control room was destroyed. So you couldn't turn the robots off? No. They can go on their own power on on a stored charge for up to 12 hours. Suddenly, they just stopped following our instructions.
1: ...or started following someone else's.
2: No idea who it might have been? Him. Professor Oppenheimer's assistant. Simon Quaid.
0: Moore, Garvey, and Professor Joseph Oppenheimer, Chief Robot Programmer for Delos, converge at Westworld to inspect the scene. Remotely, Simon Quaid commands first the gunfighter robot, then all remaining robots to reactivate and kill the three, who barely managed to escape via helicopter. We find out the malfunctions experienced by Westworld were really sabotaged by Simon Quaid, assistant to Professor Oppenheimer.
2: Quaid is a self-centered extremist.
1: He hated me when I agreed to use the robots for the Westworld Entertainment Complex. So
0: Quaid destroyed Westworld
1: out of vengeance. No question about it. And he won't stop there. He wants it all. He's got one hell of a good chance of getting it with those robots. I don't envy you, John.
2: You've been trained to handle human criminals, real people, run down a fingerprint, check out a psychological background, follow past patterns. But what do you do with robots? I'm afraid all of your experience goes out the window.
1: It's a different kind of criminal. Well, we're not exactly helpless. I've contacted Washington.
0: They want us to keep a low profile, and they'll cooperate to avoid starting a panic. Between the FBI, Interpol, and all the other intelligence agencies, we'll be able to pick up on any bizarre, unusual crime that might involve Quaid and his machines. We are told Quaid has absconded with over 200 robots from Westworld and placed them all over the world in key positions, and that each type of robot has a different weakness that can be exploited. One of the Quaidbots has been placed on board a U.S. nuclear submarine. Moore and Garvey are flown out as VIPs to tour the submarine under secret orders. While there, they use a scanner to try to detect Quaid's communications and identify what crew member is the Quaid bot. When the sub is docked at port, Moore is abducted by Quaid and is nearly killed by one of Westworld's robot rattlesnakes but not before Quaid, monologues about his goals.
1: A world free of war and hunger and sickness, where the ones in charge will make decisions without fear or hysteria, without emotions that can inhibit or influence their minds. A society free of all personal responsibilities and obligations. The world's values are obscene. Tell me one thing that money can't buy, and that includes countries, Mr. Moore. Perhaps not a big one like ours at first, but bite by bite. A foothold here, a stranglehold there. Tomorrow the world. Well, at least the trains will run on time. Mussolini? You identify me with the dictator. The man was an egaholic. He required center stage, balconies, adoring throngs. I don't care if my name is ever known.
0: Back at the sub, Moore discovers Quaid's immediate plan. Launch a nuclear missile at Delos headquarters itself. Discovering the captain of the sub is the Quaidbot. Moore must stop it at any cost. Beyond Westworld's pilot episode premiered Wednesday, March 5, 1980, at 8, 7 central, against Real People on NBC and a rerun of 8 is Enough on ABC. The airing placed 61 out of 64 shows in the weekly Nielsen ratings. John Moore was played by Jim McMullen. James Wainwright was Simon Quaid. William Jordan was Professor Joseph Oppenheimer. And Judith Chapman was Laura Garvey. We'll take a complete look at the cast in the next segment. Stuart Moss was Foley, Quaid's presumably human assistant, but there's no telling given the premise. He had guest starred in two episodes of Star Trek and had a recurring role on Hogan's Heroes. Dennis Holohan was the sub-captain and Quaid bot. He married Loretta Swit after guest starring on M.A.S.H. His primary vocation is that of attorney, which he had put on hold in the late 70s to pursue an acting career. Cassandra Peterson appeared as a West World dance hall girl in only her third screen credit. For the rest of series episodes, she'd be seen in the opening credits. The following year, she auditioned against 200 other would-be horror hostesses for KHJ-TV in Los Angeles. What originally was going to be a revival of The Vampira Show became Elvira's Movie Macabre, as Peterson was allowed to develop the show based around her character. Episode Notes The pilot ignores the events of Future World altogether. Recall that film was produced by another studio and focuses only on Westworld and does not mention the other worlds Dulles had. This is hardly surprising for a 48-minute script. There's simply only so much airtime, and efficiency in scriptwriting often calls for eliminating superfluous information. Also, mentioning the other worlds would only have complicated the story for viewers that didn't see the film. The story retells the events of Westworld in exposition while replaying some scenes from the film, while some new scenes were shot. It also ignores the ending of the film, unless there were two gunfighter robot models, which is entirely possible. However, instead of a computer virus-type malfunction as presented in the film, in the series, Westworld's malfunction was caused by Quaid. However, it is never explained how Quaid came to control the robots. While he seems to be able to control all the robots still left at Westworld, others, such as Jan at Dulles HQ, played by actress Moe Lauren, is not controlled by Quaid. The story element of the robot's hand imperfection is also dropped. In the Westworld film, you could tell a robot by imperfectly designed palms of their hands. Since that would likely be too easy of a giveaway for a weekly series that depended on not knowing who was a robot, this was not carried over from the film. The robot point of view does make an appearance here and it would be carried over to series episodes. Instead of the expensive computer-generated effect from the film, a simple red filter effect is used, with a screen full of sets of alphanumeric code superimposed over the footage, while a dot-matrix printer sound is played. In the pilot, when Quaid interrogates Moore, he brings up a key plot issue that would plague the series. Moore defeated the gunslinger by sheer chance, pushing him into a watering trough, and his weakness happened to be water. This would be typical of how the robots would be defeated in episodes, as the characters would not be carrying firearms or any kind of weapons, defeating the robots with whatever is handy, a fire extinguisher, a letter opener, or exposed electrical wiring, undoubtedly a result of being scheduled for the first hour of the prime time evening, the hour of 8, 7 central. The Family Hour had been established in 1975 by the FCC, but the policy was done away with in 1977, after it was overturned in court. Even so, the well-publicized policy had become a de facto expectation in the minds of many viewers, and networks voluntarily kept airing fairly tame content during this hour. Thus, it was common to have shows that didn't contain overt violence and outright killings depicted on screen. Still, the concept of Moore and Partner being sent out to various locations to stop robots that have far superior strength and reflexes barehanded and with no military backup is preposterous on its face. Also, since Delos has robots not controlled by Quaid, as set forth in the pilot, why doesn't Moore take advantage of this and use them to fight the Quaid-bots? Yet, this was the format of the series, as told in the series opening we're about to hear. Episode 2, My Brother's Keeper, aired March twelfth, 1980.
1: When you made that deal with Quaid, you
0: may have signed your brother's death warrant.
1: Why would he possibly want to kill me? Have uh, you checked the price of oil lately? You're as beautiful an enemy as you once were a friend.
2: It's hard to believe that a man I knew so well could have changed so much.
1: He's a killer robot. I know how to handle him. You stay right here.
2: What are you programmed to do? Kill John Moore.
0: And we now have a series opening.
1: It began with Westworld. Three, two, one. activate now. A futuristic playground where people could act out their fantasies with robots so sophisticated it was impossible to tell them from humans. Your move. Suddenly, the robots changed, turned into the deadly servants of their creator, Simon Quaid, who took them beyond Westworld. I have an impregnable army of loyal and unquestioning troops. I've placed robots all over the world. He wants it all. There's one heck of a good chance of getting it with those robots. Delos, builders of Westworld, must stop Quaid. Assigned is Security Chief John Moore and Special Agent Pam Williams.
2: Let's face it, John, it's your wits against Quaid's machines.
0: Quaid buys up the gambling debts of the brother of an oil magnate in an effort to take over his brother's company, Stoner Oil. John Moore's investigation leads to a football team owned by Stoner. We are also introduced to the new character of Pamela Williams, federal special agent and former protege of Simon Quaid and love interest of John Moore. Together, John and Pam must find what football player is secretly a Quaid bot. But this is complicated when Pam herself is replaced by a Quaid-bot. Guest stars Christopher Connolly as Nick Stoner, owner of Stoner Oil. He had the lead role in the brief series Paper Moon in 1974, taking over the role Ryan O'Neill played in the 1973 film. Jeff Cooper as Dean Stoner, the gambler in debt to Quaid, he's probably best known for his role of Dr. Elby on Dallas. Denny Miller was Earl, quarterback on the team, and Quaidbot. He had a 40-year career in TV and film, including appearing as Tarzan the Ape Man in 1959. Real-world football players Delvin Williams and Anthony A.D. Davis also appeared. Williams played for the San Francisco 49ers, the Miami Dolphins, and the Green Bay Packers in eight NFL seasons from 1974 to 1981. Davis, a running back, has played for multiple football leagues and teams Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Houston Oilers, and L.A. Rams. The episode introduces Connie Selica in third billing as new character Agent Pamela Williams. Immediately, the trope of robot replacement is used on the Pam character, but it lasts all of two and a half minutes as robot Pam takes a dive off the ledge of a sports stadium. A word about the opening segment. A pair of lines makes it into the opening from the pilot, but McMullen's line was re-recorded. You'll note the hell was changed to heck, likely the network not wanting to have that mild profanity in the actual series opening, leading off what many viewers still consider to be the family hour. Screenwriter Lorraine Dupree, who was writing episodes for nighttime drama Dallas that same year, said they were allowed one bastard and two dams per episode, and that was for a 10 p.m. show. Surely, producers didn't want to burn through an allotted hell right in the opening segment. The script completion for this episode was dated January 28th, which indicates about a six-week lead time from filming to air date. This episode came in 65 out of 69 shows in the weekly Nielsen ratings, tying with NBC's much-maligned variety show, Pink Lady, now more widely known as Pink Lady and Jeff. Incredibly, after only two airings, CBS decided to cancel Beyond Westworld, with this announcement hitting the press Monday morning. Shocking executive producer, Lou Shaw. I was stunned by the rapidness of it. They apparently want instant gratification or nothing. Episode 3, Sound of Terror, airing March
1: 19th, 1980. We've been hit. Two canisters. Uranium 235. Gone. The bomb is of the utmost importance. Nothing must stop its delivery. I've seen people electrocuted before. He didn't strike me as any different than any other human being. I have a human? Of course he was human. What was he supposed to be?
2: Stop! We have to find out which member of your group is a robot and where he's hiding a nuclear bomb. What do you think you're doing? He knows exactly what he's doing, he's the bomb.
0: In order to construct an atomic weapon, ostensibly for a foreign government, Quaid steals uranium from a nuclear power plant under cover of a rock concert protest of the plant. Meanwhile, Moore and Williams pose as PR managers to attempt to identify which rock band member is a bot. now armed with an atomic bomb. Special guest star René Abergenois was power, enthusiastic rock and roller, and keyboardist of the band. Abergenois was well known for everything from the 1970 film M.A.S.H. to Star Trek Deep Space Nine and Benson. Ronnie Blakely was Ruth Avery, lead singer of the band Power & Ruth, in this episode, and whom we hear singing several times. She is known for her portrayal of the fictional country superstar Barbara Jean in 1975's Nashville, for which she was even nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress. Dirk Blocker was band member Mace and a Quaidbot. Dirk is the son of actor Dan Blocker, well-known for From Bonanza. Dirk got started acting as a teenager as a contract player for Universal and one of his first roles was that of Abel McKay on Little House on the Prairie. Blocker has had a 47-year acting career and now appears as Detective Hitchcock on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. This was the final aired episode, finishing dead last in the weekly ratings in 69th place. The next several Wednesdays, CBS aired Easter and other special programming in its time slot instead of airing the final two produced episodes. In April and May, they scheduled movies in the time slot until the fall of 1980 when they filled it with Dukes of Hazard spin-off series, Enos to compete against Real People and Aid is Enough. We now get into the two episodes that never aired on CBS and weren't seen in the U.S. until the early 90s TNT airings. Episode 4, The Lion, unaired in the U.S. until 1992.
1: He's got to be doing 180 at least.
0: What happened to Corey and your father was no accident. What do you mean? This Quaid wants to take over the lion. He's
2: done all the damage he can to me. I couldn't care less about what Mr. Quaid wants.
1: I think it's time, perhaps, that John Moore and I had a confrontation.
0: When a race car driver friend of John is paralyzed, the team discovers Delos Electronics in the debris of his race car. The Dallas team must work with a small automotive company to complete their experimental gas-a-haul engine. Find out which employee is a Quaid bot as well as expose Quaid's plan. A few very recognizable faces in this one Michael Cole as race car driver Corey Burns. He's best known for his lead role of Pete Cochran on the Mod Squad. William Bryant was Eric Lionstar. The journeyman actor had over 230 acting credits prior to his death in 2001, including Laramie, Hondo, Bonanza, Emergency, Switch, and he had the recurring role of Colt Seaver's director on The Fall Guy. Russell Johnson as Patrick, a presumably human henchman of Quaid's. Johnson was well known as The Professor on Gilligan's Island, but also appeared in several westerns and classic sci-fi films such as This Island Earth, and It Came From Outer Space. Michael Pataki had a supporting role as a mechanic. He was the irritable Captain Barbera on The Amazing Spider-Man and had regular roles on The Flying Nun, Get Christie Love, as well as Phil and Mickey, another CBS mid-season show that would start airing nine weeks after this episode would have aired. Special guest star Christine Belfort was Diana Lionstar, daughter of the company owner. She was a prolific TV actor in the 70s and 80s and is recognizable for her appearances on Banachek, Barnaby Jones, Battlestar Galactica, and I recognize her most as Baroness Von Gunther from Wonder Woman. Now, although this is listed in Online Episode Guides as Episode 4, and it is in that order on the DVD set, this seems to have been the final episode filmed, making it, really, Episode 5, with the show cancellation news taking place late in or at the end of episode production. If IMDb Trivia is to be believed, Following the location shoot at a racetrack near Lake Peru, just west of Santa Clarita, the cast and crew showed up for work the following day at the soundstage where they were told of the show's cancellation. No filming was done that day, and an impromptu rap party was held instead. Perhaps I didn't notice it before, but the Dulles team have a push-button mobile phone in their car. This was far earlier than they became commonplace, but mobile phones mounted in cars were depicted on TV as early as the late 1950s, and Richard Diamond, private detective, was the first TV character to regularly use one, according to MeTV. And in Oppenheimer's office, a customized version of an actual Westworld movie poster or one-sheet is clearly visible. The version used was an advanced version that had the movie title at the top in a custom typeface derivative of Westminster, that computery-looking font discussed in the last podcast on Search. Later one-sheets used the Westworld logo designed for the film and featured the film rating. This version had Yul face separated from his head. Later versions only had the lower part of his face missing, showing exposed circuitry. The credits and ad copy were removed and covered with an orange-brown background. A neat meta-moment. You could imagine images like this used in advertising for the Dallas resort. Episode 5, Takeover. Unaired by CBS.
1: Officer Moore, he's in charge of your personal security. Thanks nice to meet you, Governor. If it'll put your mind at ease... Three pounds of high-strength steel fabric. And if we can control the human emotions, we can make man into the perfect species he should have been. This is Quaid. Place the chip now. It's the ultimate expression of technology. A human robot. Come on
0: Hey, look out! Quaid has developed the technology of implanting a computer chip into the brain of human targets to control them bypassing the need to replace them with QuaidBots. And this new procedure gets a test run. Unaware of this new threat, John poses as a uniformed police officer to root out the Quaid bot that has already infiltrated a local police department. But Quaid's sights are on more than controlling local police as he aims to assassinate a California gubernatorial candidate, ensuring his QuaidBot wins the election. A lot of names in this one, taken in credit order. Monty Markham as the police captain. He was Mr. Deeds in the 1969 series, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, and was the new Perry Mason in the early 70s. He also played the police captain on Baywatch. Julie Summers, likely best known for her regular role on Matlock. Harry Rhodes as a police commander, a regular on Dactari, The Streets of San Francisco, and Most Wanted. He sadly died in 1992 at age 59. Martin Cove, best known for playing Crease on the Karate Kid franchise. Special guest star Robert Alda as the governor. Known for Guys and Dolls on Broadway and over 100 TV and film roles, including regular roles on Super Train and Days of Our Lives. He was the father of actor Alan Alda and George Takei as Dr. Marcus, a Bot. Oh my. This was clearly the best episode since the pilot. As we finally get to a plot with real stakes, instead of wasting time with football teams and car races, replacing a prominent politician with the potential of reaching the White House itself. The character of Quaid's new assistant of Patrick, played by Russell Johnson, is introduced and is given much more to do than in The Lion, which makes sense since this was likely the fourth episode filmed as we just examined. Quaid and Patrick have a number of scenes as they revel in this new scheme, and they have pretty good chemistry together. However, some questions are left hanging, such as, is the general public now supposed to be aware of the Quaidbots, since they saw their governor revealed to be a robot and destroyed on live TV? Is there a state governmental crisis now that it is presumed the real governor has been killed by Quaid, as indicated in the final lines of dialogue? Is there mass panic at the thought that any government official or prominent person could secretly be a robot? This episode had a lot of potential for setting the stage for some interesting directions being examined. But this was 80s episodic TV, and the episode ends with a joke and a freeze frame, and things returning to the status quo. Still, writers Greenberg, Solomon, and Dinalo delivered a relatively great script— as well as keeping details from Westworld such as the silver-eyed glaze of the gunslinger in the series applied when any Quaidbot is forcefully deactivated. A detail left out of Sound of Terror and The Lion due to the Quaidbots being utterly destroyed in those episodes. It's a real shame this one didn't air earlier. Or at all.
1: Beyond Westworld will continue. Beyond Beyond Westworld. Sponsored by Crest. Fighting cavities is the whole idea behind Crest.
0: CB! Okay, Rocket Boy, off with the space helmet. Aw, oh, Mom. <laughs> Kids, my little
2: Space King's brushy habits are out of this world. I have the same worry about my Adam's teeth, and I can't watch them around the clock. That's why we use Crest. Crest gives him long-lasting protection. Long-lasting protection? That's news to me. Crest has Fluoristan. With regular brushing, the Fluoristan protection stays active in his teeth. It doesn't rinse out, so it helps fight cavities around the clock. You sure are sold on Crest. (laughs) You would be, too, if your family got the great checkups we do. I can see my next mission is to buy some Crest.
1: Crest keeps on protecting long after you stop brushing. Come on everybody to Disneyland's 25th anniversary extravaganza starring Danny Kaye, Michael Jackson, The Osmonds, Adam Rich, and Sorrel Book, Annette Funicello, and Pirates, Cowboys, Witches, and Fairy Princesses. You're invited to Disneyland's 25th anniversary at the Magic Kingdom, Thursday at 8, 7 Central.
0: Behind the Scenes Beyond Westworld was a Lou Shaw production in association with MGM Television, with interiors filmed on sound stages at their Culver City studios. Series developer and executive producer Lou Shaw had been a TV writer starting in the late 1950s. He became the head writer on Get Christy Love in 1974, when that show was handed over to Glenn A. Larson for a mid-season retooling a show which only lasted to the end of the season. However, after paying his dues as a writer for about 17 years, including writing several episodes of McLeod, another Larson-produced show, Shaw became a producer on season six of McLeod, or a seven-episode stint, working alongside Winrich Colby under supervising producer Ron Satloff. However, when his series concept revolving around the investigations of a medical examiner was sold to Universal and went into production, Shaw and Colby left to work on new show, Quincy, M.E. Yes, Shaw had originated the series idea for Quincy, originally a character called Quince. Shaw entered into a 50-50 deal with Glenn Larson, who had a relationship with Universal and got the show sold to them and NBC. It was Larson who renamed the character Quincy, although the nickname Quince was often used by his friends on the show. An early favorite of Shaw's to play Quincy was James Earl Jones. However, it was Jack Klugman who got cast in the title role, and Quincy debuted on NBC, initially as a series of 90-minute telefilms, broadcast as part of the rotating NBC Sunday mystery movie, alongside Columbo, McLeod, and McMillan, who had by this time dropped the And Wife After only four outings, the show was given its own regular series with a 60-minute time slot and proved to be very popular over its eight seasons. Following Season 3 of Quincy, Lou Shaw made his Beyond Westworld pitch to MGM and subsequently got CBS interested in a series. Given the word go from CBS authorizing a pilot, Shaw called John Meredith Lucas, a personal friend who he had worked with in 1974 on an episode of Canadian series Dr. Simon Locke, syndicated in the U.S. as police surgeon. Shaw had also introduced Lucas to his wife Patricia, whom he had married the prior year. Lucas's name should be familiar to any fan of Star Trek, as he was a producer on the second season and had a hand in writing or directing seven episodes. Lucas agreed to come on as producer and moved into Louis B. Mayer's original office at MGM at the front of the studio lot. The current MGM executives had moved on to the iconic Thalberg building, seen on screen in a number of film and TV productions. Beyond Westworld would be the last series Lucas produced before largely retiring from the business. Ted Post, who had helmed over 350 hours of television, as well as the films Hang 'em High and Beneath the Planet of the Apes, was conscripted to direct. With a producer and director for the pilot, the production then faced numerous problems from the very beginning. So many, it's a wonder any episodes were ever produced. The first issue was casting. Lucas quickly found issues even finding a casting director for the project, among those he had repeatedly worked with. Once prospects found it was not another Westworld film being cast, but a television pilot. When I called casting directors, they were eager to work with me again until they heard it was a network pilot. Then they passed, asking to be called again if it became a series. I quickly found why pilots were not desirable. In a feature, a star must commit for a limited period of time. In a pilot, he must commit the time it takes to shoot the pilot, wait until the network decides to pick it up and air it, and then be committed for however long the show runs. It is clearly not easy to get named stars for such a questionable venture. When Edward Bloom was brought on to cast the pilot, producers, the studio, and the network all disagreed on who should be cast. According to Lucas, this resulted in no name actors being cast on the series. With the casting hurdle to be dealt with, there were then shifting executives at CBS, as well as studio politics taking place at MGM. The initial CBS executive in charge of development Lou Shaw had worked with, Robert Silberling, who had liked the original pilot script very much, had been removed from this position following the disastrous start CBS was having out of the gate for the 1979 fall season. The new development exec didn't like the pilot, and the script had to be rewritten. However, there were financing issues with MGM. Studio president Kirk Kerkorian, who had auctioned off two of the studio's backlots, as well as the contents of seven soundstages of film memorabilia a decade earlier, had now put the whole studio up for sale and was reluctant to spend money on new projects. Although Shaw was able to siphon some financing from MGM's television arm, this may have resulted in the pilot being reduced to a one-hour runtime. Some sources claim the pilot originally would have been a two-hour movie, although I was not able to verify that claim from a known source. A copy of the pilot script currently on eBay is 61 pages, not really enough to fill a two-hour time slot and I note the episode tag on page 61 was not seen in the pilot, so there may have even been a later revision. In the pilot, producer Lucas was able to cleverly reuse footage from the original Westworld movie with new voiceover exposition, filling runtime and cutting production costs. Noting that the pilot contained submarine scenes, Lucas found footage from another MGM film to reuse. The script had extensive submarine sequences. Shooting the exteriors would have added immeasurably to the budget, but I found that MGM owned a feature called Ice Station Zebra, which had footage of a helicopter landing a man on a submarine. There were also various shots of the sub submerging and surfacing. I ran the picture, selected the shots we could use, and integrated them with footage we would shoot. It was a big saving. The completed pilot was screened for network and studio executives, and CBS president William Paley reportedly loved it. But incredibly, CBS playing musical chairs with executives meant Robert Silberling was now head of programming, who had liked the original pilot script prior to the changes that were made, but not the one shown at the screening. Even so, a mid-season series was greenlit in December for five additional episodes, making for a six-episode test run, giving the team only two weeks to scramble into production. Shaw brought on two writers he had used on Quincy as story editors for the series, Steve Greenberg and Aubrey Solomon, who are credited with writing the unaired episode, Takeover. I found several quotes from Solomon regarding working on Beyond Westworld. Noting the hectic production schedule, he said it, was changing every five minutes. And the high cost of production meant that MGM was constantly involved with the scripts for financial reasons. I don't think any of our stories were excessive for budgetary areas, but because of the special effects and the action, there were constant changes and requests for cuts and slim downs in terms of action. Aubrey Solomon also has the inside scoop on what Lou Shaw was like to work with as a producer having worked with him extensively on Quincy. Lou is a funny kind of producer, because he'll spend three weeks trying to get Act 1 right, and then you'll have two days to figure out the other three acts. So a large part of our time is spent working on that first act. Yes, the series seemed hastily produced, because it was. Concepts, themes, and interesting societal implications that could have been developed in a world where anyone could have been replaced with a robot went unrealized in favor of standard 80s chase show fare. After it got going, the show played much like the late 60s show The Invaders, where human-looking aliens were pursued from one location to another. Only the concept had been much better done on that series. Well, we heard producer Lucas's comments on casting, so let's go ahead and take a look at the cast we ended up with. Jim McMullen was cast as John Moore, chief of security for Dallas Corporation. The actor got his start by being signed as a contract player for Universal in the early 60s. He then appeared in a slew of TV westerns and medical dramas. In 1974, he was cast as the lead in the series Chopper One. Following that short-lived series, he spent the next five years again as a day-player guest actor. He was 43 by the time of casting on Beyond Westworld, and reading between the lines from several accounts, he may not have been anyone's first choice for series lead. In his younger days, he played a frontiersman on Daniel Boone and a competitive skier alongside Robert Redford in Downhill Racer. But his mature appearance here with feathered hairdo seemed, at least to me, more like that of a talk show host instead of Man of Action series lead. However, McMullen was bullish on the series concept, having previously worked with Michael Crichton. I loved the idea. Michael Crichton and I worked on his first movie for television that he directed, Pursuit, and a film he wrote right after that called Extreme Close-Up. Now, Michael had nothing to do with Beyond Westworld. He just gave them the rights to do it and then stepped away. Following Beyond Westworld, Jim McMullen appeared on WizKids as Richie's father, Don Adler, and became known for a recurring role on Dallas as Senator Dowling. He has since died in 2019 at age 82. James Wainwright was Simon Quaid, Della Scientist Gone Renegade, Wainwright had started acting in one-shot appearances on F-Troop, Bonanza, and Gunsmoke in the 1960s. In 1972, he was cast in his own series on ABC, Jigsaw, playing Police Lieutenant Frank Dane, assigned to investigate missing persons cases. The series was short-lived and lasted only seven episodes. Wainwright then took a light workload for the next few years, tooling around the coast of Mexico, fishing for sailfish and marlin, taking occasional one-off TV roles. Following his appearances on the miniseries A Woman Called Moses and the TV movie Undercover with the KKK, he was offered the role of Simon Quaid. I decided to do Westworld on the basis of Quaid, Never in the some 280 roles I've done has there ever been this kind of character. It's difficult to unlimber a character in only 48 minutes, but that's the challenge I enjoy, to make him a villain and still maintain the audience appeal. Most interesting are the directions the writers were planning to go with the character. According to Wainwright, Quaid would have been captured in the never-produced final episode of the test run and put on trial for his crimes. The writers say he'll be acquitted, though, so if the show is brought back next season, he'll be allowed more contact with the guest stars instead of hiding out the entire time. But what even Wainwright may not have known regarding his character was revealed by producer John Meredith Lucas in a side comment on the series from his 2004 memoir, 80-Odd Years in Hollywood. The script had elements of sci-fi. The adversary was an android who nobody realized was not human. Yes, unknown to all the series characters, the cigarette-smoking arch-villain of the series was himself a robot. Since we never saw this story element in five episodes, one wonders if it would have been revealed in the unproduced finale, perhaps as part of a cliffhanger ending, to draw viewers back for season two what could have been following the series James Wainwright guest acted on about eight TV series as well as the 1983 film the survivors he has also died far too early in 1999 at age 61 Judith Chapman was Laura Garvey chief technician for Dallas, as seen in the pilot episode 1980 was a busy year for Chapman, appearing on The Incredible Hulk, BJ and the Bear, Buck Rogers, Family, the TV movie Nick and the Dobermans, The Misadventures of Sheriff Lobo, and yes, as the mysterious Angela on the last episode of the disastrous Galactica, 1980.
2: And I judge this mortal to be good. So very good.
0: Chapman since made a name for herself on daytime TV, however, having recurring roles on Ryan's Hope, General Hospital, Days of Our Lives, and, according to IMDb, as Gloria Simmons on 855 episodes of The Young and the Restless. For reasons nobody knows for certain, her Beyond Westworld character was dropped after the pilot and for series episodes, was replaced with Connie Selica as Pamela Williams, Special Agent from an Unnamed Federal Agency. For the series opening, producers had Selica re-record Judith Chapman's lines from the pilot.
2: Let's face it, John, it's your wits against Quaid's machines.
0: Selica's character as a federal agent teamed with Moore's character of Dallas security chief did make more sense than two Dallas employees trotting around the country with no oversight. Although we don't know for certain the full circumstances regarding the recasting of the female lead. I reached out to both Celica and Chapman, but unfortunately got no response. In his book, producer John Meredith Lucas gives us an idea of what may have happened. After we had shot for a full week, I got a phone call early Sunday morning from the leading actress. She had just been diagnosed with German measles. I informed Lou and then spent the whole of Sunday on the phone with the assistant director rescheduling all the scenes we would have to reshoot with whatever new actress we could get. Monday, we frantically recast. Now, Lucas does not specify what actress was replaced with whom, but this sounds an awful lot like Judith Chapman becoming sick and being replaced with Connie Selica. Selica doesn't appear until the second act of Episode 2, well over 20 minutes into the story, and is suddenly introduced. Whatever the reason, Selica was a welcome addition to the short series. She had just come off another CBS show, Flying High, which had just been canceled after one season, but didn't feel insulted by the cancellation, as she indicated in a period newspaper interview. I don't take cancellation personally. It doesn't get me down. But it's true that the time slot is going to be tough. The audience needs to get a taste of us. I think they'll like the show, and my character Pam Williams is a beautiful but very intelligent woman with lots of versatility. I think people will like that kind of touch. Beyond Westworld is a spin-off of the movie Westworld, and the robot nemesis will be within each show. We are only doing five shows for now, and hopefully we'll get picked up for the fall. Jim McMullen had very kind words for his co-star. Connie was wonderful. We got along very nicely, and we had fun working together. This show was a big boost for Connie. It was a good opportunity for her to get started. As a matter of fact, Connie and I did a movie of the week called She's Dressed to Kill, just after the show. At the time of the series, Celica was married to Buck Rogers star, Gil Gerard. A year after Beyond Westworld, she starred as another Pam, Pam Davidson, Pam Davidson. The Counselor, on ABC's The Greatest American Hero, for its three seasons. Immediately following that series, she was cast on ABC's Hotel, where she appeared on all five seasons. William Jordan was Professor Joseph Oppenheimer, chief robot programmer for Delos. Oppenheimer would usually not go into the field with John and Pam, but would provide remote technical assistance from Dallas headquarters. Jordan was in about 60 films and TV shows spanning about 35 years, including series Project UFO and Secrets of Midland Heights. The character's name of Oppenheimer is a callback to the actor who played the unnamed chief supervisor in the original Westworld film, Alan Oppenheimer. Creator Lou Shaw was also very likely making a reference to J. Robert Oppenheimer, one of the people credited with being the father of the atomic bomb, for his involvement in the Manhattan Project. Observing firsthand the first atomic bomb detonation in 1945, Oppenheimer later quoted the ancient Hindu Sanskrit Bhagavad Gita, Now I am become death the destroyer of worlds. Like McMullen, Jordan following the series spoke well of his co-stars in this 1996 quote. Connie was just getting started. She was a very sweet, bright, able actress. She was a real delight. She's still a very pleasant person. Jim, I still see regularly. We're still good friends. I run into him every month or so. We've worked together on other projects, so it's not like it was the only one. It was kind of like a family here sometimes, and not just because of the series. It's like when you go out for different interviews and projects and you are similar in age, qualities. Naturally, you run into that person reading the same part. Severin Darden was Foley, Quaid's driver and assistant in series episodes. He replaced Stuart Moss as Foley from the pilot. A TV and film actor since 1961, Darden appeared in supporting and guest roles on well over 100 projects, including two Planet of the Apes films and in yet another extremely short CBS series in 1987 called Take Five. Darden died in 1995 at age 65. Anne McCurry was Roberta Quaid's primary robot assistant. She used the Anne McCurry name until 1985, when she started using her real name, Nancy Harewood. She had married actor Dorian Harewood in 1979. Beyond Westworld was her only regular series role. Now, how about someone not listed in the credits? Rita Eggleston was Connie Selica's stunt double. She was one of the few women in the stunt business at a time where there was only about 15 members in the Stunt Women's Association. She doubled for Lindsay Wagner on The Bionic Woman, as well as on The Fall Guy and the TV movie The Two Worlds of Ginny Logan. She also worked on The Incredible Hulk, Cliffhangers, Wonder Woman, Charlie's Angels, as well as films Tron and Blade Runner. Eggleston had been inspired by now-legendary stuntwoman Jeannie Epper when, at 22, she saw Epper being interviewed on television. Attending Occidental College, she played intercollegiate sports and trained in judo. She then found a stunt school run by Paul Stater, who taught her to apply her judo knowledge to fighting on camera. Fighting is one thing. Stunt fighting is another. Back then, it was mainly for guys. But Paul taught us how to throw a punch and make it look real. Working graveyard shifts at 7-Eleven, she hunted for stunt jobs during the day. After doubling for Linda Lovelace, now appearing in Legit Films following her pornographic debut, Rita landed a gig on The Six Million Dollar Man, doubling for Lindsay Wagner. This led to work on new series, The Bionic Woman. Doubling Superheroes was mainly running and jumping, leaping tall buildings in a single bound, falling frontward and backward. Yes, one of the key stunts performed on shows like Bionic Woman and Wonder Woman was the backward highfall. This is where the stunt person stands at the top of a building, back facing out, and jumping off the edge while looking up. This is then played backwards in editing giving the illusion the hero is jumping from the ground to the top of the building. The falls were usually done no higher than 35 to 40 feet. Rita's work on Beyond Westworld seemed to be mainly on Episode 2, where the robot version of Connie Selica's character took a tumble off the ledge of a sports stadium onto the bleachers below. The five episodes of Beyond Westworld were helmed by five different directors. The aforementioned Ted Post did the pilot. Remaining episodes were directed by Rod Holcomb, previously working on Battlestar Galactica. He then worked on several episodes of The Greatest American Hero, including the pilot, Paul Stanley, who started directing television in the mid-1950s, and whose credits include The Outer Limits, Mission Impossible, Medical Center, and Hawaii Five-O. Jack Starrett, who was both an actor and director that made a name for himself with low-budget, drive-in exploitation films of the 1970s, such as The Losers, Cleopatra Jones, and Race with the Devil. And the legendary Don Weiss, known for the Patty Duke show, It Takes a Thief, Ironside, Kolchak the Night Stalker, M.A.S.H., Remington Steel, and some 130 other titles. In his 2004 book, producer John Meredith Lucas had interesting comments about Lou Shaw's writing on Beyond Westworld. Lou had a unique technique of writing. He called in his six-year-old daughter and told her the story. If she could understand it, that's how it was written. This is not to denigrate Lou's writing or the intelligence of audiences, but it does address the audience's attention span. I previously mentioned Aubrey Solomon and Steve Greenberg were the story editors on the series. They teamed with Gregory S. DiNallo for their episode, Takeover. He wrote episodes of The Six Million Dollar Man, The Amazing Spider-Man, and Knight Rider. Howard Demsdale, writer of My Brother's Keeper, has an interesting story. He wrote movie screenplays in the 1940s and 50s until he was blacklisted during the McCarthy era and forced to then write for television in secret under the name Arthur Dales. His work includes Zane Gray Theater, Ben Casey, Planet of the Apes, Medical Center, and Quincy. He eventually became a respected writing teacher at the American Film Institute in Los Angeles, where he taught and mentored two students. Frank Spotnitz, and John Scheiben, both of whom were later writers and producers on The X-Files and The Lone Gunman series. Howard Dimsdale died in 1991 at 77. Martin Roth, writer of Sound of Terror, was known for his work on McHale's Navy, My Favorite Martian, I Dream of Genie, Arc 2, and The Dukes of Hazzard. David Karen, Roth's co-writer on The Lion, wrote for a lot of animated shows, G.I. Joe, Dennis the Menace, Super Mario Bros., and was a story editor on Season 4 of Star Trek The Next Generation. Star Jim McMullen commented on the series' writing. The pilot was a well-written script, and in this genre, you need good scripts that are well thought out and will intrigue the audience and are tricky and will go in different directions. The pilot had that. They waited and finally got an okay from the network to go ahead with it. Then on short notice, they had to come up with all these scripts, and they were not very good. They got worse as they went along because they were in a real hurry to deliver them. It's such a shame, and that's why the series fell. Indeed, the pilot script had been completed and delivered to MGM and CBS in early June of 1979 with production on the series not starting until December, as we've covered. You may notice another familiar face in the credits, that of Fred Freiberger, who was brought on as producer for the final 2 unseen episodes. Freiberger is well known for having produced the third season of Star Trek, for which he is somewhat unfairly castigated. He then produced the jazzed-up second season of Space 1999 in 1976, which had a substantially different tone and feel than did the first season, something extremely noticeable to even the most casual viewer of that series. Some of his creative choices have been widely criticized, even during the production. At one point, Space 1999 director Ray Austin, in reaction to a particularly maligned episode featuring a sentient rock formation, reportedly had a large rock delivered to the producer's office one morning with the attached note, I name this rock Freiberger. He then went on to run the final season of The Six Million Dollar Man. Here, Freiberger wasn't on board long enough to drive any major production changes. The only quote I found from Fred regarding Beyond Westworld was two words. Impossible concept. Freiberger's next project immediately following Beyond Westworld was to be Space Station Starburst for the 1981 fall season on CBS. Projected as a Saturday morning show, this proposed live-action series would have chronicled the first manned space station in Earth orbit. The show would have had realistic production values, with background information supplied by NASA. The show obviously didn't sell, as I can find absolutely no information on it. Leonard B. Kaufman was another producer brought on late to the show. His previous work included the incredibly short run of Time Express, Hawaii Five-0, and The Life and Times of Grizzly Adams, for which he also wrote episodes. The serviceable generic 80s action music theme was by George Romanis. He also composed the theme music for The Feather and Father Gang in 1976 and Helltown with Robert Blake in 1985. He scored episode music for series like Moving On and Medical Center, and his last known work was the episode Too Short a Season for Star Trek The Next Generation. We've discussed Hub Braden quite a bit on this show. He was art director of Beyond Westworld. From Star Trek to Alice to Super Train to Street Hawk, the production and set designer has worked on many of the shows this audience grew up watching. Undoubtedly, the biggest issue facing Beyond Westworld, other than the production troubles, was its competition. Scheduled Wednesday nights at 8, 7 central against two very popular shows. ABC's 8 is Enough and NBC's Real People, the show faced a nearly insurmountable hurdle. Starting in 1977, 8 is Enough was an Emmy award-winning comedy-drama featuring the Bradford clan, a somewhat fictionalized version of newspaper columnist Tom Braden's Real Life Family. Based on his 1975 book of the same name, the series underwent theme song and cast changes, and it was generally well-received by viewers, with Seasons 2, 3, and 4 being the most popular, almost but not quite cracking the top 10 shows on TV during the years of 1977 to 1980. The show remained quite popular in syndication throughout the 80s and 90s. And there is a little bit of irony that Eight is Enough, starring Dick Van Patten, who appeared in the original Westworld film, is at least partially responsible for killing Beyond Westworld. Real People hit NBC in late mid-season 1979, and was an early entry at what reality TV looked like in that era. Featuring hosted pre-filmed segments shown to a live studio audience, shows focused on people with a unique occupation or hobby. It was about as popular as 8 is Enough, near the top of the teens in the top 20 shows, from 1979 to 1981. It quickly spawned imitators like That's Incredible at ABC, That's My Line at CBS, and even the 1982 version of Ripley's Believe It or Not, had shades of real people. NBC even attempted two spin off series, but both quickly failed. This reality format fizzled out around 1985. Jim McMullen revealed the superior pilot was why the series was placed in that Wednesday evening time slot. I thought the pilot was great, and it got fabulous reviews, and that's why they put it on opposite the toughest show on television, Eight Is Enough. They refused to move it. The ratings started to drop because they were fighting a show that was well ensconced. However, CBS waiting until the last minute to greenlight series production for subsequent episodes meant a drop in quality in writing and production value, which caused even producer John Meredith Lucas to feel contrite about his involvement with the show, which was the swan song for his TV producing career. I regret Beyond Westworld. I regret it for Lou's sake. It was a premise that should have worked. I also regret that it was my farewell to network shows, but after that experience, I had had enough. Despite my dismal academic record, I managed to learn one thing, when to quit. Unfortunately, audiences weren't really given the opportunity to judge the show based on its full six-episode order. The ratings numbers from just two airings decided beyond Westworld's fate, a result of CBS's relentless pursuit of winning the ratings war for the season, which they did, again powered mainly by their Sunday night lineup mentioned earlier, as well as MASH, Dallas, the Dukes of Hazzard, and even new midseason replacement Flow, which came along after Beyond Westworld ended. But that is another story. Beyond Westworld went forgotten for a dozen years, until TNT began airing episodes in the summer of 1992. The British Sci-Fi Channel aired the series in 2001, and it has aired in Australia, Canada, France, Italy, Netherlands, and Spain, quite a wide distribution for only a five-episode series. For decades, there was no official release of the series on home video. Then in 2014, Warner Archive finally released the series on their now-defunct streaming service, as well as their print-on-demand DVD service. It is still in print, and the series is now widely available on several streaming platforms from Amazon, YouTube, and Apple TV. Some thematic story elements originally considered in Westworld would later surface in 1990 in Michael Crichton's novel Jurassic Park where a Central American Island theme park is populated by living dinosaurs brought back by modern genetic biotechnology. Both properties are cynical looks at the arrogance of humans, creating things that cannot be controlled and end up being a danger to humankind. The subsequent mega-blockbuster film series inspired by Jurassic Park is still going. With the next planned film, Jurassic World, Dominion, slated for release in 2022. And yes, in 2016, filmmaker and TV creator Jonathan Nolan brought Westworld back to U.S. television as a reinvented series for HBO. This version of Westworld goes far beyond the original, simpler story in a complicated tale much more deeply exploring the mechanics of the Westworld theme park, as well as the dark impulses of human nature. The series takes place in the 2050s, and like the original Westworld film, robot hosts inhabit an American Old West world, living out behavioral loops they repeat daily, interacting with human guests that can engage in every kind of violent or sexual behavior they desire, engaging in ongoing narratives created by operators of the park. After a software update, some hosts become self-aware, realizing what they are as well as the nature of the world they inhabit. According to a Hollywood Reporter article, Warner Brothers had been eyeing a remake of Westworld since the early 1990s, with producer Jerry Weintraub endorsing the idea. Following HBO's success with quality first-run series programming such as The Sopranos and Deadwood, Weintraub convinced the network to authorize a pilot and then brought on Jonathan Nolan and co-writer Lisa Joy the critically acclaimed and Emmy Award-winning series enjoyed the most-watched first season of any HBO original series. Reportedly, producers have mapped out five to six seasons of storyline, three of which have been released and a fourth has been approved by HBO. And although he died in 2019, 20 years earlier, Jim McMullen had expressed a desire for the series to be revisited. I would love to see them do this again properly. If I had the opportunity, I'd like to try to bring this back again. It was very exciting to me. The concept was simple. A villain who's disgruntled with what they were doing with his androids, pitting them back at society, doing dastardly deeds. That's wonderful. And you have a James Bond character that I played, running around with all his expertise, being a troubleshooter, checking them out. You never knew who the android was. That was the mystery each week. Well, HBO's series is far more complex and adult than a formulaic chase show aimed at an early evening 1980 audience. But Michael Crichton's original Westworld concepts are thoroughly examined, and you wonder what Crichton and McMullen would have thought about the new series. Yes, Lushaw's series was rushed and short-lived, a result of CBS's timeframes and scheduling, and not necessarily shortcomings by the writing and production team. If given enough lead time, a fall debut, and a better time slot, perhaps we would have been given a full season of Beyond Westworld. While its competition cranked out several science fiction series over the next few seasons, CBS only attempted one, Otherworld, also a mid-season show airing in January 1985, and also very short-lived and Lou Shaw? With Quincy wrapping up at the end of the 1982-83 season, he went on to be supervising producer of The Fall Guy for its third season. In 1985, he again worked with Glenn Larson, creating the short-lived series Half Nelson for NBC. His 1986 TV movie, Dalton, Code of Vengeance 2, is a story in itself where, using a voiceover narration, he cobbled together a two-hour presentation from five unfinished episodes of an attempted series Universal had given up on. This was his last TV effort. Following this, Lou Shaw, known by many in the industry as one of the fastest writers in television, faded into a quiet retirement following his 30-year Hollywood career. Today, through the magic of DVD online streaming, worldwide syndication, and nostalgia TV networks, many of his over 300 hours of television are still enjoyed by the public all over the world. And viewers can again watch a cowboy in the big city chasing criminals on horseback, follow along as a medical examiner solves the weekly murder, or yes, chase Quade's robots across the country all over again. next time on Forgotten TV. Ben
1: Richards will live longer than anyone has ever lived. But a transfusion to the wrong man could make him a prisoner for all time. And so he runs from the hunters, the human hounds who would cage him. Here on Earth, the prince is known as Matthew Starr. He's a typical american teenager he has friends people who love him and me his guardian i'm the only one who knows how special he is for the big time. looking like a texas sequin star making eyes at every tight team the cowboy sassing good old boys around the bar close Yellow road There's a world where we don't have to run and maybe there's a time we'll call our own living free in harmony and majesty. Take me home. Take me home. Take me home.
0: Podcasts on 1970's The Immortal. 1982's The Powers of Matthew Starr. 1980's Flow. 1977's The Life and Times of Grizzly Adams. And 1984's V, The Series. Exciting shows are ahead, so stay tuned to Forgotten TV. You can support Forgotten TV on Patreon or PayPal and gain access to exclusive content posted, which includes Forgotten TV Supplemental, over 20 podcasts in addition to the ones in the main feed, which include documentaries on ABC and the Still the One Era, the untold real story of the video rental industry, and the impact of Graham Doerr's original science fiction story, The Outer Limit. This episode of Forgotten TV was executive produced by Will Welton, Doc Pinko, and Robert, with producers Julio Coppa, Rich Kunkel, Mark Hadley, KL Young, Ralph Caraccio, and Ron. And of course, thanks to all who support At The One and Two Dollar Levels. Forgotten TV is not affiliated with or authorized by CBS, MGMUA, Warner Brothers, or any production company or network involved in the making of any TV show or film mentioned in this podcast. Links to Amazon are affiliate, and as an Amazon associate, Forgotten TV earns royalties from qualifying purchases made. Beyond Westworld is the copyright and property of MGM UA Television, Warner Brothers Home Entertainment, and possibly additional rights holders. Other series mentioned are the property of their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Any audio clips included are for the purposes of review, commentary, and criticism only, and are not intended to infringe. This podcast is copyright 2021 Forgotten TV Media. The views and opinions expressed by guests and quoted sources are their own and may not reflect the opinion of Forgotten TV Media, its sponsors, or patrons. This podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only. Information presented is based on a combination of first-hand personal accounts, period news media, books, and website articles. All reasonable effort has been made to fact-check the information presented. However, forgotten TV media cannot guarantee the accuracy of every detail included and makes no representations or warranties for the content in this podcast and cannot be held liable for errors or omissions. And I'd like to thank the following YouTube channels for making some of the audio possible. David Gideon, Apotheon SAK, Rare Stuffs, AD Productions Limited, Movie and Video Game TV Spots, Midas Fury, Test Channel Number 1, The Wrap Sheet, Warner Archive, Jerry Anderson, and HBO. Sources of quotes and background information, not given directly to Forgotten TV, were obtained from the following sources. The books, Storytellers to the Nation, A History of American Television Writing by Tom Stemple. Eighty-Odd Years in Hollywood. Memoir of a Career in Film and Television by John Meredith Lucas Science Fiction Television Series 1959-1989 by Mark Phillips and Frank Garcia Stunt Women The Untold Hollywood Story by Molly Gregory And articles at the websites Television Obscurities The Michael Crichton Official Website Newspeak Flashback Venture Venture IGN, Starlog Magazine, Issues 40 and 91, MeTV, The Sci-Fi Freak Site, and numerous vintage newspaper articles from newspapers.com. Thank you for listening. Be sure and bookmark Forgotten.tv for all content and links to social media. I am your writer, producer, and host, Chris Cooling, and this has been Forgotten TV.